Stuart Haynes, and I want to welcome you to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. As our listeners know, the treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction involves a cocktail of medications, including ACE inhibitors or ARBs or ARNIs, beta blocker, uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists or MRA, and now a sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitor. And this cocktail of drugs has been shown to reduce the risk of hospitalizations, improve exercise tolerance, and most importantly, reduce mortality. And there are a number of other drugs that could be used to improve symptoms. For example, most patients with heart failure take diuretics to reduce fluid overload, particularly during heart failure exacerbation. So we have lots of effective treatments for reduced ejection fraction heart failure. But but the same cannot be said about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And, and that's probably because the underlying pathophysiology is, is a bit different. So for the past 40 years or so, since we began to routinely use echocardiography to define the patient's ejection fraction, for patients with preserved ejection fraction, we primarily focused on treating hypertension and mitigating other cardiovascular risk factors. But in recent years, there has been renewed interest in finding effective treatments for this large and growing patient population. And it is in this context that the recently published Emperor Preserved study evaluated the use of the SGLT2 inhibitor in pagliflozin. And here to talk to us about the treatment of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and the potential use of empagliflozin are Gabrielle Gibbons and Robert Parker. Dr. Gibbons is currently the PGY2 internal medicine pharmacy practice resident, and Dr. Parker is a clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology at the Memphis Veterans Affairs Medical Center. Dr. Parker is also a professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Translational Science at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And I need to add the author of the chronic heart failure chapter in Depero's Pharmacotherapy, a pathophysiological approach. So, Robbie, my friend, it's great to have you on the iFormerX podcast. And, Gabrielle, it's great to have you as a first-time contributor. Welcome. Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be here. We're really looking forward to uh, discussing the Emperor Preserve trial. Yes, yes, thank you, Stuart, for having us. We're happy to be here. So, Robbie, I'll have to be honest, I haven't exactly kept abreast of what's happened over the past few years in terms of the best practices for treating patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So I'm wondering if you can give me a brief overview of why the treatment approach in this population needs to be different, what treatments likely have the most benefit, and what should I call it? Because I really don't like saying heart failure with preserved ejection fraction over and over and over again. Thanks, Stuart. I'll tell you what, let me address your your last question first. I agree with you. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is a mouthful, and, and it doesn't exactly roll off of the uh, tongue. Unfortunately, I think in the heart failure world, it's the term most commonly used for this disorder. Sometimes we, we hear another term that's, that's uh, called HEF. HEF for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and HEF-REF for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. But at least to me, they also seem awkward. So either one is fine. I guess just use whichever one works uh, best for you. So with that in mind, I want to give the listeners just a brief overview of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and the way it's been historically treated 
in order to give a context to some of the recent advances in the pharmacotherapy of this disorder. As I'm sure the listeners are aware, heart failure is a critical public health problem in the United States. Currently, there are over 6 million Americans that have the heart failure syndrome, and about 1 million new cases are diagnosed each year. So not surprisingly, this disorder has a tremendous economic impact on the healthcare system as well. So we've historically assumed that the heart failure syndrome was caused by a decrease in cardiac systolic function, usually documented by an ejection fraction of less than or equal to 40%. However, over the last decade or so, numerous epidemiologic studies now show that up to half of patients with heart failure have an ejection fraction greater than 40%, and this is typically termed heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The risks of hospitalization and death in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction are often similar to those with uh, reduced ejection fraction. So in these patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, the primary pathophysiological problem is ventricular diastolic dysfunction, such that the myocardial relaxation and ventricular filling are impaired and incomplete. The left ventricle is unable to fill with an adequate volume of blood from the venous system and thus is unable to maintain an adequate cardiac output, activating many of the same compensatory responses that we see in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Clinically, patients exhibit similar signs and symptoms as those with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, including fatigue, dyspnea, and exercise intolerance. Also, there is growing recognition of the role of systemic inflammation, peripheral microvascular endothelial dysfunction, and skeletal muscle abnormalities in the development and progression of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. What appears to be clear is that it is a systemic disorder and not simply a problem with the heart. Also, there is a high prevalence of comorbid conditions in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction that likely contribute to the underlying pathophysiological problems. Chief among these is hypertension. Now, despite our tremendous advances in the pharmacotherapy of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, where we now have four drug classes, treatments affecting these outcomes in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction remain elusive. As a result, treatment has primarily focused on control of volume overload, if present, with diuretics and management of coexisting conditions. Similar to what we see in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, those with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction often require loop diuretic therapy. Guideline-directed treatment of comorbid conditions is also key in these patients. Effective management of hypertension, diabetes, atrial fibrillation, and coronary disease is critical. Post hoc analyses of several clinical trials show that ARBs, as well as spironolactone, may be effective in reducing heart failure hospitalizations in this population. Beta blockers are often used to treat other conditions, such as rate control with atrial fibrillation or post-MI, but the same benefits are generally not seen in those with preserved ejection fraction. Thus, effective treatments for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction are clearly an important unmet need in cardiology. So that's why the results of the recently published Emperor Preserve trial are exciting. So, Gabrielle, in your commentary, you reviewed the study, which is entitled Impagliflozin in Heart Failure, 
with preserved ejection fraction, which was officially published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October 2021. And while I think everyone should read this paper for themselves, we provide a link to the paper on the iFormerX website. But can you give us a, a brief summary of the study methods and the key results? So the Emperor Preserve trial was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial evaluating the effects of empagliflozin in approximately 6,000 patients with hef Adults with a left ventricular ejection fraction greater than or equal to 40% and a New York Heart Association functional class 2 through 4 symptoms were randomized to receive either a fixed dose of empagliflozin 10 milligrams daily or placebo. And the primary outcome evaluated was a composite of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization. After a median follow-up of over two years, the primary endpoint occurred in 17.1% of patients in the placebo group compared to 13.8% of patients receiving empagliflozin. This represented a significant 21% relative risk reduction. The number needed to treat with empagliflozin to prevent one event was 31. The primary outcome was driven by a 29% reduction in heart failure hospitalizations, and there was no difference in cardiovascular death or death from any cause between the two groups. The total number of hospitalizations for heart failure was reduced by 27% in the patients receiving empagliflozin. And this was similar to the results with SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Regarding safety, empagliflozin was well tolerated and not surprisingly, genitourinary tract infections and hypotension occurred more frequently in patients receiving the drug than placebo. However, this is consistent with known common adverse effects of this drug class. So, Gabrielle, every study has some strengths and weaknesses and, and potential limitations. Do you have any concerns about the design and conduct of the study? And are there any sources of bias or potential confounders that we should be aware of? So I will say that this trial has numerous strengths that are important to recognize. First of all, the Emperor Preserve trial was the first trial in patients with HEF to, to reach its primary endpoint, and there was no increased risk of serious adverse effects associated with empagliflozin in the study. Supporting the clinical applicability of the results, the patients included are typical of those clinicians will encounter when taking care of individuals with HEF. They were older with a mean age of around 72 years old and had multiple comorbidities that are commonly found in this population. Approximately 90% of the patients had hypertension, 50% had diabetes or atrial fibrillation. Additionally, patients included were on typical background therapy for heart failure with preserved infection fraction, with 80% receiving a RAS inhibitor, most commonly an ACE or an ARB. 85% of patients were on a beta blocker, and over one-third of patients were on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. Thus, the improved outcomes with empagliflozin showed the benefit of adding an SGLT2 inhibitor to these agents. Finally, the positive results with empagliflozin were consistent across multiple pre-specified subgroup analysis, including whether or not the patients had diabetes, patient sex, history of atrial fibrillation, or use of RAS inhibitors. And although these results are clearly an important therapeutic advancement, there are important study limitations that clinicians should be aware of. So the primary endpoint occurred in 13.8% of patients treated with empagliflozin compared to 17.1% of patients receiving placebo. Although this represented a significant 21% reduction in the primary endpoint, an alternative view of the data makes the results seem less impressive, meaning the primary endpoint did not occur in 86.2% of patients in the empagliflozin group or 82.9% of patients in the placebo group. Thus, regardless of the treatment received, the primary endpoint was not observed in most patients. 
Although empagliflozin reduced heart failure hospitalizations by 29%, the drug did not reduce overall hospitalizations as only 16% of the total number of hospitalizations, which was over 2,500, were due to heart failure. Since being admitted to the hospital for any reason is a poor outcome, the reduction in heart failure hospitalizations without a reduction in total hospitalizations with empagliflozin is less important. The benefits of empagliflozin appeared to be attenuated in patients with an ejection fraction over 60% and those who received a mineral or corticoid receptor antagonist and in those under 70 years of age. Neither cardiovascular or overall death, renal outcomes, or quality of life were improved by empagliflozin compared to placebo. Another limitation is that 75% of the patients enrolled self-reported their race as white, whereas black patients were underrepresented at only 4% of the study population. This is concerning given that black patients in the U.S. have higher rates of heart failure hospitalizations. Thus, the applicability of the findings to more diverse patient populations is uncertain. Finally, an additional consideration would be the cost of this medication. Currently, empagliflozin is only available as the branded version, and patient access and affordability must be considered when prescribing this agent. So, Robbie, I'm wondering how the results of Emperor Preserved compared to previous studies in this patient population. For example, some years ago, the TopCat study demonstrated some benefit with spironolactone use. Is this really a, a major advancement that we're seeing with this study or not? Yes, Stuart. In the TopCat trial, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014. And their goal was to evaluate the effect of spironolactone in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And to qualify, the patients had to have an ejection fraction greater than or equal to 45%. Here, the investigators found that there were no differences between spironolactone and placebo on the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death, cardiac arrest, or heart failure hospitalization. A modest 17% reduction in one individual component of the primary outcome, heart failure hospitalizations, was found with spironolactone, although hospitalization for any reason was not affected. Spironolactone was associated with a doubling of the risk of hyperkalemia from 9 to 19 percent and a greater risk of increase in serum creatinine. There were also differences in outcomes by region of enrollment. A greater reduction in the primary outcome with spironolactone was observed in patients enrolled in the North and South America compared to Eastern Europe. So these differences really confound the interpretation of the results. More recently, uh, the Paragon Heart Failure Study compared the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor, or ARNI, secubitril valsartan to valsartan alone in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and an EF greater than 45%. After nearly three years of follow-up, there was about a 13% relative reduction in the primary endpoint of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure in patients receiving secubitril valsartan, but this effect did not reach statistical significance. The investigators did do a pre-specified subgroup analysis in patients with an EF less than the median value of 57%, and here they found a 22% reduction in the primary endpoint, whereas no benefit was observed in patients with an ejection fraction greater than 57%. The findings from this subgroup analysis led the FDA to approve a label revision for secubitril valsartan to include treatment of, of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Specifically, the label now states that secubitril valsartan is indicated 
to reduce the risk of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization in patients with chronic heart failure, and that the benefits are most evident in patients with a below normal ejection fraction, although they don't really define below normal. Clearly, though, this opens the door to the use of Secubitril Valsartan in many patients with heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction in the range of 41 to 49%, as well as some patients with preserved ejection fraction and ejection fractions of 50 to 57%. So, Robbie, what's the bottom line? Is the Emperor Preserve study a landmark clinical trial that should change practice? Uh, should we be routinely using an SGLT2 inhibitor in all patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or are there just some subsets of patients who would be a good candidate? And finally, should we be favoring the use of empagliflozin over other SGLT2 inhibitors, or do you think this is a class effect? Well, really, Stuart, since the uh, Emperor Preserve study is, is the first one in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction to achieve its primary endpoint, I think it represents an important step forward. Patients in this trial receiving empagliflozin were less likely to be hospitalized for worsening heart failure which is an important endpoint for patients, providers, and the healthcare system. Importantly, the findings are consistent, though, with those from trials with empagliflozin and dipagliflozin in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and suggest that the benefits observed are likely a class effect of SGLT2 inhibitors. So in general, empagliflozin or perhaps dipagliflozin should be strongly considered in all patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, regardless of the presence of diabetes. Many patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction also have diabetes or chronic kidney disease, which are also positively affected by SGLT2 inhibitors, making an even more compelling rationale for these drugs in these groups. The single fixed dose of 10 milligrams obviates the need for complex dose titration seen with some other therapies, and the agents are generally well tolerated. Also, drug costs are an important consideration with these agents, as they can be expensive for many patients. And then finally, I think one of the most important things to come out of Emperor Preserved is that the results of this trial have initiated a paradigm shift in how many think about the use of ejection fraction for classifying patients with heart failure and identifying optimal therapies. For years, the ejection fraction has been used to match patients with pharmacotherapy. However, many leaders now in the heart failure world are now arguing that the 40% ejection fraction cutoff is arbitrary and that patients with higher ejection fractions also derive benefit from our usual therapies previously reserved for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. The Emperor Preserved findings, along with the Paragon heart failure study with Secubitril Valsartan, and the TopCat trial with spironolactone showed that patients with what we now call heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction, so 41 to 49%, and those with ejection fractions up to 55% benefited from these therapies. This would certainly simplify the treatment of these patients, and the results of numerous ongoing clinical trials should help clarify this approach. Well, Gabrielle, Robbie, I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss the treatment of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and the role of empagliflozin. Well, tell us what you think. The SGLT2 inhibitors have once again demonstrated significant and clinically important benefits in patients with heart failure. 
is a reduction in hospitalizations enough reason to use these agents or should we wait for mortality data? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments. So if you're not already a member, be sure to sign up today. Any health professional can become a member of iFormerX. It's free. For those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, this podcast and the written commentary are part of the American Pharmacists Association's board recertification program. So you can earn recertification as well as continuing education credit for this professional development activity. And you can learn more just by clicking on the link posted below the commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to extend a very special thank you to Mallory Talese at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Albany, New York, who has been an active member of iFormerX for the past four years and who joined our advisory board after completing her PGY2 endocrinology pharmacy residency. Not only has she authored and reviewed several commentaries, she's encouraged her students and residents to join our former ex as well. So thank you, Mallory. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be well, my friends. Mm